Welcome everybody to the Digital Decisions Podcast. This is a podcast featuring leaders around the world shaping the face of digital transformation. I'm Kate Wilson, your host, and I'm joined today by guest researcher and fellow podcast host, Sardik Satapathy. Sardik and I met last spring when I joined him on his Talking DPI podcast, and he has been a valuable mentor and friend since I decided to launch this Digital Decision podcast a few months ago. So I asked him to join me for the first few as I kind of get my podcast sea legs. And we are kicking off this inaugural episode with one of the most cogent thinkers in the space on digital transformation, Robert Opp. Rob is currently the Chief Digital Officer of UNDP, the United Nations Global Sustainable Development Organization, working across 170 or- countries globally with more than 22,000 staff. He leads the agency's digital transformation and organization-wide effort to harness the power of new technology to improve the lives of those furthest behind. Prior to this role, Robert served as Director of the Innovation and Change Management Division within the United Nations World Food Program, or WFP, where he led the development of the Share the Meal Zero Hunger app that raised over 100 million for hunger programs around the globe. He also previously worked in management consulting at the Boston Consulting Group and started his international career at the IDRC as a proud Canadian citizen. Rob, welcome to Digital Decisions. It's been an exciting few months on the global stage from the G20 summit to the UN General Assembly and most recently the Internet Governance Forum where you have just returned from and you and UNDP were present at everything. Um, We really appreciate you sharing your time and insights over the course of the next hour on what's changing globally in the digital transformation conversation and the role of the new thing that everyone is talking about, digital public infrastructure. Before we get into the politics and what's been happening, I was hoping you could share with us a bit more about how you ended up at UNDP. I understand, for example, something I learned today, even though I've known you for some time, that you grew up on a grain farm in Western Canada and then spent your first overseas post in Angola during a civil war. That is quite a jump. (laughs) Could you tell us a little bit about how you kind of moved from sort of Western Canada to uh, Angola and then how you got to digital? Sure, Kate. And uh, Kate Sartak, it's a pleasure to be here with you. So, yeah, I mean, my story is... um... Uh, I, I, to, to make a long story short, uh, I did grow up on a grain farm in Western Canada, and I really didn't leave the country for the first sort of 18 or 19 years of my life. Then what happened, I was studying a history degree in Canada and decided to do a semester abroad program in Ghana, in West Africa. And I ended up kind of having my eyes open to the world of international development, the world of global affairs. And I really, it was something that really resonated with me from a kind of personal interest point of view and just to sort of really understanding how global affairs are so how interactive, just so connected. And so I really, then I decided to pursue a master's degree in that area. And I spent some time living and working in places like Malawi and Mexico and I had a a short stint working with the Canadian government, but then fairly early in my career, I was accepted as a junior professional officer in the World Food Program. And the posting that was available for me was in Angola, as you said, during the Civil War. So that was how I ended up there. Wow. (laughs) That is quite a story. And then how, what took you from there to then end up at UNDP? And so, and where did your work in innovation really start at at WFP? So was it just with that app or was it before that? 
Yeah, well, that was, I guess, phase two. Um, so I'm, once I started working with WFP, I became sort of the uh, first several years working for the UN, uh, working in humanitarian assistance, and I did some policy work. I worked a little bit in headquarters, ended up working with the executive director uh, in a number of different uh, capacities. But to make a long story short there, I got a little fed up with the UN partway through my career and decided to uh, leave and work as a management consultant for a couple of years. Um, so I did that with the Boston Consulting Group in Singapore. That was an, an amazing experience and gave, gave me a whole different skill set to the one that I had learned in the UN system. And then what was, uh, I think, what I decided after that was that, you know, maybe this isn't, the commercial orientation wasn't really where I wanted to be. And I missed the global picture. So I decided to go back to the UN and but this time with a sort of a different kind of view around taking the new skill set around how do we pursue more efficiency and effectiveness? How do we become just a better, better organization and serve people better? And that really led me into a series of jobs that were more focused on how do I leverage innovation and innovative approaches to really make organizations more effective? And and um, I eventually found my way into becoming WFP's first director of innovation. And I had the opportunity to start an innovation accelerator, the Share the Meal app, a bunch of really interesting projects. Wow, that's amazing. I, I can remember meeting you, I think, for the first time in like 2016. And uh, the colleague who introduced us was said, like, this is one of the smartest people at WFP that you will ever meet. And, uh, you know, even though I've known you probably seven years it's funny. I never knew that story about either the farm or Singapore. Absolutely. And as somebody who just did uh, an international relations major, you know, very recently, I can only wish my career goes on the same trajectory. So, so it's very inspiring to listen to stories. But yeah, coming back to UNDP, Rob, if you can help us situate UNDP within the whole UN system. And also, while you're doing that, help us understand where does digital transformation kind of fit into this whole mix? Yeah, and I realized I didn't even answer the, the other question about how I got to UNDP then. So <laughs> I, will, I will answer that um, in the answer to the question you just asked. Um, well, UNDP is the United Nations Development Program, and it is essentially the, the development arm of the UN system. Broadly speaking, the mandate is around poverty eradication. That, though, means that UNDP has significant programs in a lot of different thematic areas, areas like climate change or climate action, um, energy, resilience, gender uh, programs, poverty programs more directly, um, and governance programs. And so that means that UNDP on the ground, um, and UNDP is on the ground in 170 different countries, um, UNDP is often the kind of first port of call to, to governments who are looking at their national uh, development actions that may not fall into specific sectors. And, and we've been doing that for about the last 50 years. So um, UNDP is kind of one of the anchor agencies on the ground in, in most of these places in low, low and middle income countries. But the, you know, the organization has worked in the digital development or ICT for development space for a couple of decades. And there are some pretty notable um, successes that have happened over the last couple of decades when it comes to countries like Estonia that 
UNDP uh, worked on in, in the late 1990s, uh, early 2000s. Um, the Estonian e-governance academy, which has gone on to do incredible work overseas, was actually a, a project of UNDP very early on. Um, and there's some other countries where there's been a lot of foundational work done in, in the digital space. But in 2019, um, when the, the, the current administrator arrived, Akim Steiner, um, he was looking at kind of strategically where the organization needs to go. And one of the things that he really is a strong believer in is the role of innovation and understanding the kind of new trends and mega trends that are impacting countries and how to anticipate those. And so digital was one of those issues where he, he could see that countries that we were uh, working with were really facing their own choices and need in terms of digital capacity. And so decided that the organization, UNDP as an organization really needed to look at its own uh, makeup, its own systems, but also its programming and how we really reach countries. Um, and so the long story short there, um, they brought in a consulting firm to help sort of give a, a, a kind of a jump on a first strategy. Um, and one of the first implementation actions of the first strategy was to hire a chief digital officer. And that's kind of where my story intersects again. So I was that I was working at WFP um, as leading the, the innovation uh, function, as I mentioned before. But uh, the opportunity arose to, to kind of take on this brand new first in the UN position of a chief digital officer uh, and really work on an organization-wide transformation when it came to digital. And so after you know, deliberation, I decided that that would be something that I would pursue and, and was uh, appointed as UNDP's chief digital officer at the and toward the end of 2019, September 2019. And so that was kind of the beginning of the digital transformation journey of UNDP. But of course, I started in September and COVID really started at, let's say, February, March. And that changed a lot about what we were doing in digital. Um, and it meant that we I ended up doing things that I was not expecting in terms of the need to, to very quickly put in place a wide range of country support as countries really tried to deal with social distancing and figure out how would they go online and leverage digital and contact tracing and all the rest of it. Um, and so ended up uh, kind of doing all of that, adjusting programs and all that sort of thing. And then um, we decided after the first couple of years of the strategy that we needed to, to do a new one because of the first implementation period was until the end of 2021. And that allowed us to kind of collect those lessons from COVID and put it into a new strategy, which went into, it went into effect uh, January 1, 2022. So that's kind of a long-winded um, answer to your question, Sartha. That's very helpful, Rob. I, I was just as an extension before uh, we start discussing everything else, if you can just very briefly help us understand what does your office focus on next in terms of initiatives? Is there anything that you're looking forward to or are currently working on? And maybe if I can just tack on to that question, going back to your commentary about Akam and, and seeing like megatrends, maybe what are some of the megatrends that you all are seeing that sort of has led into the new strategy that I think goes until 2025, right? That's that's right. Um, 
So, well, I mean, the, the issues there strategically and globally from the UNDP strategic plan point of view, um, you know, we see a lot of issues around uh, the, the like kind of big megatrends are climate and digital are two of the biggest, right? Um, the, the climate change, the need for green transitions, the financing for green transitions, all of those kinds of things. But the digital contextual shift is massive and impacting countries. And so really, th that's where we kind of based underneath the strategic plan, we put the, the digital strategy kind of in that sort of context and really, you know, look at how do we embed digital thinking across all of UNDP's thematic areas that we work in. But also, and one of the things that COVID exposed in a way was the need for us to work more holistically at country level on building what we call inclusive digital ecosystems. Um, and this is something, you know, I know Kate, you've done a lot of work in this area around, you know, the, the sort of digital transformation that countries need to, to work on themselves at a national level in order to leverage digital technologies as an enabler for their own national development goals and objectives. Uh, and so that space was something that I think UNDP wasn't consciously working in before, but it has become a main focus of our work. And that also led and has led to the digital public infrastructure space. Um, but just to, you know, to kind of answer your question, Sartak, about what are the th kinds of things we do, um, well, my mandate as chief digital officer actually is both to change the organization as well as change our programming and how we reach our, our partners. And internally, there's a whole lot of things that we do, like um, building a new data strategy and all sorts of new uh, sort of back-end systems together with our colleagues in the IT department, um, doing a lot of other things that are kind of focused on data culture and digital culture and sort of building up capabilities of workforce and all of that. And then externally, as I mentioned before, kind of working on inclusive digital ecosystems and what, is, what does that actually mean when we support countries in their national digital transformation processes. Uh, and some of the interesting developments there are definitely digital public infrastructure as a kind of approach that can be a driver for, for digital transformation. AI, of course, is a big thing that's burst onto the scene in this latest wave of generative AI. And so countries asking um, how, how can they get organized on AI? And we've started an AI readiness assessment process and things like that. So it's, it's a very, let's call it an agile space. <laughs> we are watching some of these big drivers, but I definitely think digital public infrastructure is going to be one of those, um, I think, really long-term impactful approaches and concepts that I, th I think every country will basically come to kind of see where they fit into that and how they can leverage that as an approach to build their digital infrastructures. Thanks for that. I, I, was, I was wondering just to kind of build on that a little bit, you know, you've talked a lot about sort of the country demand and how that country demand really changed coming out of COVID and new threats, either war in Ukraine, which has sort of shifted this viewpoint, um, climate crisis and digital being a part of it. it. It feels like you can't talk about a sectoral intervention, agriculture or, or any SDG really, 
without adding digital to it. And so I guess one of the questions I would have is, I have two questions. One question is, as has the strategy and then has the global communities and the, maybe the UN really started to shift its approach, has that really been driven by countries kind of placing it as a priority and how high a priority is it for you? So like, what are you hearing as you're, you know, covering the world and talking to different countries about how they're thinking about digital with like all the problems and challenges that they face? And then I think the second part of this question is, is the digital the driver or is the uh, are the other problems the driver and it's there to serve it? Because I mean, some of it comes about the language we use and you've said it yourself, which is like, this is a societal transformation, digital is the tool. But sometimes it doesn't feel that way. So let's talk about sort of the priority and then which should really be in the lead, the problem or the tool? Yeah, uh, it's a very interesting. <laughs> well, it's a very interesting question. Um, generally, I think that people, the players that we have in this in the system and in this ecosystem, whether you're in the government side or whether you're in the UN system side or even NGO or donors or whatever, we're all trying to solve problems that are in front of us. And I think most of the players in this space, if not all, I'd like to think that, that most of them um, really are focused on the problem here. So they're not trying to just throw solutions at the front end and say, we're gonna be driven by you know, a particular tool or, or kind of approach. So maybe that happens in some cases, but you know, when we talk to governments and different ministries, the, the ministers and the, the people in those ministries, they're just trying to solve a problem that's sitting in front of them. And what is happening is that that's the same whether you go to the health sector or the agriculture sector or education, et cetera, at a kind of ministry level and at a sort of UN level where we often mimic those sectors with our different agencies, there are people there that are trying to solve problems. They see digital technology as a major lever and accelerator and tool that can help do that. Um, so they're rapidly applying it. The issue, of course, is that you end up with massive fragmentation because uh, across different ministries of a government, each ministry will have its budget and they're investing in their own systems, the digital approaches, and then they end up with stuff without any logic of interoperability or any kind of thought of coherence in the ultimate system because they're just trying to solve their problem. They're not trying to solve the neighbor's problem. Um, and that happens, that's actually this, the same, ref, the same thing is reflected in the UN system. And so the sectoral agencies are just trying to help their government counterparts, or they're just trying to solve their problems. Um, and then all of these things, as we've now observed over a number of years, start to converge because, well, you know, um, the education ministry says, well, we need a register for all students in the country. And the uh, you know, social protection ministry says, well, we need a, a registry of all social protection beneficiaries. And the health ministry says we need a patient registry. So pretty soon, everybody's got a different identity platform. And none of them talk to each other. And they're all, you know, have, have tried to solve the problem that's in front of them. But then we've revealed another problem, which is duplication and fragmentation. And so that's really where 
you know, this kind of the notion of digital public infrastructure for us kind of comes in to sort of look at this picture of fragmentation and say, if we took a different approach to this, how might we overcome that kind of fragmentation and build rather horizontal or cross-cutting or transversal systems that can really serve across all of these different sectors? So I think maybe I answered a question you haven't asked, but that's kind of the, the way that the, the progression of this has been. And the, you know, I've definitely seen a shift in the COVID, post-COVID period from moving from this notion that uh, digital is about a series of apps or individual point solutions. And then we're really starting to understand that a digital approach, uh, that digital is actually a, a, an approach. It's not, it, you know, it's their technologies, but it's a whole approach and a mindset that is more focused and needs to be more focused on ecosystems and systems change. So it's kind of that solutions to systems shift that, that we're observing. And this is on the minds of countries. Often they don't quite know how to get there. And so they, they ask us or others for help in, in trying to do that. It's interesting because one of the things um, that you touched on was, I mean, it's not like this problem of, you know, there's an app for it didn't exist for decades, right? It had been going on for 10 to 15 years. And then there were some people in the space who were sort of really advocating for taking more of a platform-based approach that kind of took place, a platform-based kind of digital transformation. And then I think you add on to that, um, the I think the power in it was that there were suddenly these very specific use cases and, and country, you know, not use cases, but just countries who could say, hey, we did this and here's how well it worked. And that then spurred this sort of competitive dynamic. But then there are people like, oh, I want that because it was suddenly very tangible to them. It wasn't somebody talking about, you know, here's your digital identity and here's your payment platform. It was suddenly like there are these places and they have solved their problems and they've built once and it's reused across many things. And that's a very compelling story. I think that suddenly had kind of captured the world's attention in the middle of kind of a global pandemic. What do you think, Sartuk? Like, how have you seen it? And like, how do you see sort of the political momentum changing this too? If we just look at the recent trends, Rob's just been back from a whirlwind tour from starting from the G20, the UNGA, the IGF, and, and we've seen that momentum just in these forums, specifically for digital public infrastructure, as you know, Rob pointed out earlier. And if, if we just stick to that for, for a moment, R Rob, you've been to all these forums, you've heard from countries in all these forums. What do you think are some of the main themes or the main discussions that are coming up or that are surfacing that that you feel are critical to be addressed at the moment? Yeah, well, I think, you know, to sort of, to start with Kate, I think that your analysis is spot on. Um, what has happened is that we, in, in this sort of process of national digital transformation, let's say, um, some countries kind of stumbled on an approach or maybe were more prescient than that and, and foresaw that taking a platform approach or a kind of transversal approach to some of these issues uh, really could be very beneficial. Um, but I think what's what's happening is it's more organic than that. It's sort of just like you're realizing, oh, okay, well, 
you know, I've got these pillars in place. Now I have to make them talk to each other and that sort of thing. And that, that process has been a bit painstaking for most players. Um, but some have managed to kind of emerge with very strong examples. And, you know, you have the kind of classic examples of, of Estonia at the one end, a small country that, you know, sort of needed to pick itself up following the, the fall of the Berlin Wall and, and build something new for itself. And then India, which was on the other end of the scale spectrum, um, trying to solve very real and dramatic problems of underdevelopment in certain in certain places, and really kind of driving a stack idea around how these technologies could come together. Um, and then there's many variations there. So I think that it, what what is what we're seeing is just this sort of now recognition that is coming into these forums that Sartak is mentioning about the G20, which was led by India last year, and we've been supporting them uh, for the whole year on lifting this issue into kind of the global profile, the global visibility around in this digital public infrastructure space, what has actually worked for them and what could potentially be put into a structured approach for low and middle income countries around the world who are looking to accelerate their digital transformation. And the really interesting, interesting thing about the G20 is of course, um, the G20 countries, most of them are not low and middle income countries sitting there, um, but they're also kind of taking notes and looking at what India and others have done and saying, you know, maybe this is something worth reflecting on in our own countries and our own societies in different ways of, of kind of the ways that technologies can work together um, with, and this is crucial, we haven't really got into this yet, and I know that we will, but crucially, being governed properly, in other words, having a governance sort of layer around it, and having it structured in a way that invites the private sector to innovate as well. So, but, but in terms of these international kind of forums and things like that that are happening now, the reason I think is that this is a, a sort of a, a timing issue, as you said, Sartak, following the COVID pandemic, countries sort of really are all looking at how they build their digital infrastructure. And once they emerged from their acute phase in terms of post or, or pandemic response, we could see this in the requests that we received as UNDP, where countries would be initially asking for a health management database or something, but now are asking for more strategic things, um, policies on data privacy, or uh, in many cases, national digital strategies uh, for, for their own digital transformation. And kind of moving up the, the chain from very point uh, solution approaches into those more strategic asks. Um, and this is also why I think digital public infrastructure is picking up in momentum as people realize. And that, that term we have to realize is, you know, a term that's been applied for, let's say the last couple of years um, in terms of what's come coalesced together. But yeah, it's referring to these things that have been happening for a couple decades in these countries, finally coming together, countries emerging from the pandemic are saying, whoa, we really got exposed and we need to do something different. Uh, and so jumping into that, there's a lot of momentum in all of these forums, G20, the General Assembly, the Internet Governance Forum, um, the WISIS, uh, many others. So I want to ask 
kind of a follow-up to that. You've talked about sort of the the role of DPI as I think you're saying this is a DPI as an approach or sort of framing it as and, and really excellent play, books, by the way, that UNDP put out around the G20, both in the DPI compendium as well as the playbook. I think it's to the to the clearest places where I think countries and practitioners can kind of get a handle on what this is. And in that, you really framed it as DPI is an approach that's part of digital transformation and that that's one way of doing it. But it was it was interesting to me because um, I also just came back from kind of being with the East African community and they were not talking about DPI in the slightest. <laughs> they were talking about elements that would then tie into and be DPI, but they don't really use that terminology. And and so I'm, I'm a little curious about if you feel like that the term is really well understood and that's sort of question one. And then I'm also really curious about, because I didn't see much of this, though I heard it constantly also with this group, which is we still don't have the connectivity to do this well and make it inclusive. And it feels a little bit like we're talking about infrastructure, but it's like only the infrastructure we want to talk about. And we're kind of ignoring the fact that, you know, <laughs> You actually need to reach the 2 billion people who still can't be touched in order for the DPI part to work on top of it. So I'd, I'd love for you to kind of comment on that and, and sort of if you're seeing the same thing or hearing the same thing. Yeah, no, we, we are. I think um, the issue is simply that, you know, the digital public infrastructure as a term, as I mentioned, is really fairly new still. Um, and once people, I think, understand what's behind it, there's a sort of a, a, an easier sort of way of, or uh, it, it gets easier for countries to kind of come on board with it. But I, I fully recognize that there are countries out there that are still looking, they may have even seen the G20 work, they're still kind of looking at it going, is this relevant for us? Does this really suit our needs? And uh, there's work to do in terms of trying to demystify this term with countries and explain what it means. And again, you know, as UNDP, we are excited about this approach, but we're not, let's say, uh, evangelizing uh, about it. So it's kind of, we think it's a kind of a logical way to pursue digital transformation at a national level. And we've got proven examples now of how technologies in, you know, kind of arranged in certain ways with the right governance layer and things like that can really have a strong impact, but the flavor of it will have to be customized and adapted for every single country. There's, there's no question about that. And, and I do think this over time, I think we'll see more recognition and more acceptance for the term for sure, as people kind of understand it better. In terms of the question around connectivity, we, we also hear this a lot. And let's face it, in least developed countries, the digital divide is still well over 60%. I think in, in terms of least developed countries, only 34% or something to that. I'm not sure if I've got the right number, but about 34 to 36% of uh, people are actually connected regularly. And so it's a different picture. Now, we know that that's not just an issue of infrastructure, physical infrastructure. That's an issue of affordability. It's an issue of skill set. 
and all of those kinds of things that contribute to what we call the usage gap within the digital divide. And countries have to deal with those issues. I think what we would normally say, though, is that it's not a sequential issue. Countries need to be thinking about their digital transformation overall. The digital divide that they face is part of the consideration of what digital transformation needs to look like. There is, I don't think, generally speaking, there needs to be a sequential kind of move to making sure everyone is connected first before you can do anything else because there's inevitably lots of things that you can do at a government level that would involve a digital public infrastructure approach that could still have significant impact for people who are unconnected. And the India example shows this. So the India example, especially when it extends into the kind of healthcare area, there are many people that have benefited from the, the sort of digital public infrastructure approach to the health work in, in India, including the, um, you know, the COIN vaccine platform and others that are being reached by community health workers that are reaching them at the last mile at, at the community level, but the efficiency is being improved by the digital public infrastructure approach and the kind of the way that it's, it's being done is much more effective as a result of that, having a DPI kind of approach in place. And so there are these kind of bridging issues that we need to, to touch on, like the last mile inclusion. And of course, part of your digital transformation will always be closing the digital divide with all of the kinds of initiatives that that takes that really may have less to do with digital public infrastructure for sure, but it is part of your national picture. Absolutely agree with you uh, there, Rob. Um... There's another contentious issue when we when we talk about digital public infrastructure and and as we start unpacking it, as you briefly touched upon, uh, you know, some time back, is the governance around it, and given that it in some ways is is positioned as key levers to digital approach that countries are taking, I was wondering what are your thoughts around just the governance and implementation models we have seen across countries and. You know, what are the variations in those? What are the tensions that you see in those? If you can just comment on that. Yeah, I think so. One of the reasons why we refer to digital public infrastructure as an approach is to stop thinking of DPI as technology. So uh, DPI is, is only partly the technologies, but what makes it an approach is that it needs to have that sort of governance layer, it needs to be embedded in governance and community. And so if there's one thing that, you know, I want listeners to take away, it's that it, digital public infrastructure does not equal technology. The governance issues are incredibly important. And for UNDP, this is our main interest in this topic from the perspective of ensuring that these systems leave no one behind. There are many concerns about, as, as you said, Sartak, about implementation of technologies. The, we, we talk digital identity platforms and things. The classic example is, is this going to actually promote surveillance states? And the frankly, what needs to happen is that any state needs to ensure that you've got the governance layers, the, the, the policies, the legal frameworks, the right protections need to be in place so that people are protected from 
the sort of potential for misuse of these technology platforms. I think it's safe to say, and there's been work done on this by Carnegie Endowment, among others, that, you know, um, digital technologies will not turn a state authoritarian, but states with authoritarian leanings will probably use technologies for their own authoritarian ends, if, you can, if I can put it that way. So we have to be, as, a, as an international development community, we have to be very mindful and careful about how we're actually um, putting these things in place because, you know, misuse is a very real possibility. So I would say that the, to try to answer your question, for us, the most important governance aspects is, is that you've got a kind of a holistic consideration of where you are in terms of your situation now in certain legal setup. So if I can put it that way, data protection is is one of them. Where do rights sit in your sort of overall framework? And in the digital identity space, we've actually just recently released us a whole kind of framework on the governance for digital legal identity systems that kind of goes through these areas of kind of thinking about what's the issue, what are the legal implications or the rights implications and what are the kind of mechanisms that you can have in place. And so um, that kind of work needs to be replicated across a lot of different platforms because we've started with digital legal identity, but I think we need to look at the other kinds of typical digital public infrastructure layers and start building out that governance, those governance frameworks that can really make it easier for countries to put in place. We have also recently launched with, together with the UN Tech Envoy's Office, a digital public infrastructure safeguards initiative. And the safeguards initiative is to really look at what are the kinds of high level principles that you need to adopt before putting in place your digital public infrastructure. And they will touch on some of these issues. Now, they're, at this point, we're talking about principles. We're not talking about, let's say, mandatory or compliance oriented standards, but I think eventually this field may go into those kinds of spaces. And so we're starting to build the set of high level principles. And uh, as I said, working with the UN Tech Envoys Office, what UNDP will do is sort of take those principles and start testing them in a few countries to sort of see the, the practicality, the feasibility, et cetera. But where I think a lot more work needs to be done in DPI is building out these layers and these frameworks for governance across the, the different technology areas, the different applications, and making available models that are usable for a wide range of countries. Because what works in one country will not, I, you, it can't be cut and pasted or copy and pasted rather, um, necessarily to the country next door. That everyone's starting from a different point. Everyone's got a different legal setup. We need to work with that and figure out what's going to work to make sure that people to the maximum extent possible are protected from, from the, the, the misuse of these systems. So many rich things in there. <laughs> Maybe I'll try and sum up just a few of them and see if I, I, if I got them right. So I think one part of it was, and I really liked the, you're not going to make an authoritarian state authoritarian, but the use of the tools, but as 
digital and we're, we won't get into DPI or anything else, but just sort of as anything that is a digital public infrastructure or, or digital transformation efforts that are going in place, that there's real thought and care in the design and funding of those to ensure that, um, that it can't be used for harm. Then you talked a lot about the, the I, which I didn't know about it, which is the, your effort with the tech envoys socialize and I think get comments on kind of the principles. And I would assume that some of that came from what was developed at the G20, because I thought your DPI playbook actually did a great job of kind of laying out, here are some of the principles upon which one could do this and really breaking apart the three terms of like, what's the framework for digital, what's the framework for public and what's the framework of what's you know encapsulated kind of an infrastructure and i think that's i would really recommend for listeners um we have a link to it in the show notes for you to go listen to that and, and read through that playbook because i think it does one of the best jobs i've seen about kind of breaking that down but i was wondering if you could also just talk a little bit about you know you started to touch on like the gaps in the current digital transformation dpi ecosystem but i was kind of curious if you could talk a little bit more about what else you think is needed? And I really want to dig into two areas um, is kind of both the financing for this, because despite it being high on the public stage, I haven't appreciably seen a great deal of more money put in around the concept of DPI versus here's a COVID or here's a climate change or here's a digital or here's a cybersecurity or here's an AI. I see lots of funds around that, but I'm not seeing a lot that's being put in place to just say, hi, country, A, go build your infrastructure. So that's sort of question one, which is around that that gap. And then question two really is still tied and coming back to where you started to go before, which was around the ecosystem that needs to be created. In order for this balance between private and public to really be a balance, it implies that you have a lot of technical talent, either within the government to procure, manage, sustain, and implement it in the first place, and or in your private sector to innovate on top of it. At least for me, I see a lot of the examples that we use that are that when it's really done at national scale are done with places with some of the best engineering talent in the world like estonia was not <laughs> there was no lack of engineers you know I, I know sometimes they might say there were but there wasn't a lack of engineering talent and the same thing with india the same thing with pakistan and and to extent bangladesh and south korea and i know that we have examples a togo a mauritania of where there are like applications but like really digging into what does it take, how long is it going to take to build that pipeline of that innovation ecosystem? Yeah, that's a question that's on our minds a lot. Um, I'll just maybe answer that second question first before returning to the financing uh, issue. The strength of your local digital ecosystem has a huge bearing on your ability to carry out some of the sort of archetypal applications of DPI, if I can put it that way. Because as you say, not everybody's an India or an Estonia or has the local talent available. So one of the things that, that we've started doing, but I will admit we are not there yet, 
is designing out what is what what can be our approaches to a holistic support of building local digital ecosystems. We right now see a lot of different, for example, capacity building initiatives that range from you know Microsoft's 10 million people trained in Sub-Saharan Africa uh, over the next X years um, to you know the work that ITU does on. Uh, training regulators and civil servants and things like that, and many different things in between in terms of citizen-focused or civil servant-focused. But bringing that together into kind of more of an ecosystem approach that has with it higher education policy, uh, attention to STEM, education, thinking about your innovation ecosystems and all the policies that it takes to kind of unleash innovation and, and support startups. And that includes, by the way, financing for, you know, startups and things like that, that can be then so, so that we can kind of start to address those shortcomings or those kind of, let's say, the, the weaker points of the digital ecosystems that we see in these countries, particularly least developed countries, and enable them to play a more meaningful part in a sort of digital public infrastructure approach as it gets rolled out. So basically what I'm saying in, in a long form is that nobody's really kind of cracked this one yet, but what we need to do is instead of looking, but what we we are convinced we need to do is instead of looking at these very fragmented efforts around a little bit of digital capacity here and a little bit of policy support there, we have to start corralling this into more holistic thinking around that, that as well on what does it take to really build over time, because it will take time, but build over time that sort of talent pipeline and the sort of all the support structures for having a flourishing innovation, digital innovation ecosystem at your country level. And so I don't have a, a much of a better answer than that, I'm afraid. And we're working with partners from, you know, kind of UNDP's got a very large startup support uh, program that's coming into place in sub-Saharan Africa called Timbuktu that is meant to give, let's say, kind of capital fund or, or venture capital type funding to uh, startups. You know, we're starting to get our kind of digital capacity, scaled digital capacity mechanisms in place, working with partners, uh, including tech companies. But it's, you know, it's about bringing it together and really trying to make it have impact at scale. Just uh, while we're on that, I, I was wondering if you have any thoughts on the role of academia as well in all of, especially in building capacity in, in this particular space, in aiding the ecosystem. A hugely important role is my answer. And this is why we think that looking at this issue of local digital ecosystems needs to take into account that sort of higher education type policies and and models that can be used because you have to have you have to have a pipeline, you have to be able to be training talent, you have to have locally minded innovators and people who understand from an academic point of view as well, how the local context is actually functioning. Because one of our concerns about, let's say, the evolution of technology in these spaces is that if we are in a world where basically everybody has to just take technology from six or seven large companies, where does that leave most countries in the world that are those, those technology platforms did not originate there. They basically are subscribers 
to kind of internationally or multinationally available technology platforms that may or may not solve their problems locally to the extent that they would like. And so we've got to have this uh, a better sense of local innovation um, that is supported with the right policies, the right structures and the right uh, academic institutions as well. Maybe if I just turn back to the, the financing question that Kate asked as well, I think in general, uh, what we've seen, I would say, is that financing responses for strong business cases are relatively easy to lift when it comes to both funding from national budgets or multilateral development banks. But I think the scale of what could be necessary is going to outpace what we've got available right now. And I think that we're starting to see the World Bank and other multilateral development banks recognizing this. And I know that in the Marrakesh meeting recently in the, the, the fall meetings of the bank, recognize this and there's going to be a kind of an expansion on their side of, of financing availability for digital transformation overall. And I think that's really exciting. I think that's great. Where I would say that if, if we consider that a lot of the availability of downstream, so kind of implementation type funding, I think will emerge. I think it will get there. Uh, one of the concerns that we have is the availability of upstream or early financing that allows countries to explore how, how to basically plan and architect digital public infrastructure. And, and there are some- as well. And cost it and yeah, cost it and plan it out properly. Because again, you know, the if the approach that is taken is that from a, a financing point of view, we're, what we're trying to do is we're trying to solve a problem. If the problem is not holistically defined or well thought through, you're going to end up again with a kind of a fragmentation or a pillar that sort of is not interoperable, that is not um, going to kind of really fit the, the broader um piece that a country might need, a broader context, broader strategic um, framing. And so what we would like to see is a bit more financing available for supporting countries really um, in that those initial phases. And this was a big discussion during the G20 as well. And some of the work that we did to kind of identify the, the gaps in this in, in the area were really in that space. It's probably a lot less money than the down, well, it, for sure, it's less money than the downstream needs. But it needs two things. It needs flexibility and availability. And it also needs, frankly, the right kind of government organization and response as well. And this is kind of takes us back to the whole point that digital transformation is not really about technology, it's about people. And so unless you've got the, the kind of the right leadership and people set up in place, you're going to kind of struggle to get a good result when it comes to sort of thinking even in upstream planning for the future and, and how that would look. You've got to have these kind of ingredients in the right way and the right proportion. And I think as a community, we're still kind of coming to grips with how to get all those sort of ingredients aligned in the right way. And I, and I just want to dig into that a little bit more, which is because you and I have talked about this quite a bit in the, while every country is absolutely unique, there are some patterns in this and there are some, let's say common recipe ingredients that need to be reused. What are those 
from your perspective right now? Like, and how is that, ha- has that changed over the last couple of years? Do you think it's different? Yeah. Well, I mean, a, a few that come to mind immediately um, is the, you have to have leadership vision and commitment around this. Um, and if you don't have that from the most central point, and that means at the center of your, you know, kind of national picture. So a president or a prime minister or, you know, a super influential leadership vision around that, um, it gets very difficult to lift your digital transformation effort. And that's that's for digital public infrastructure as well as anything else we're talking about here. If and and then once you've got that vision, it needs to be accompanied by some sort of institutional arrangement that brings, let's say, the ministries together in and the government side, so that there's a kind of a leadership vision that is driving and empowering an institutional arrangement. And in some countries, that is a you know, India had an interministerial commission and. Other countries have had sort of like presidents' councils or committees or whatever it is. It's sort of some kind of institutional layer that brings the players together within government. And then we would also argue that what's critical to make this happen is a multi-sectoral or a multi-stakeholder approach so that we are bringing in the private sector and the civil society and the academic sector and others into the conversation as we design out what that future digital transformation would look like. These are all things that there has to be a certain amount of dialogue, a consultation, and the right setup and the right leadership to really make it happen. So those are the ones that are on the top of my head. There's just probably a few more out there. I mean, including the governance issue and things like that has to be placed front and center. And actually, we, we call this whole process intentionally inclusive digital transformation. Because unless you have the intention on including everyone in society, you will most certainly leave people out as you as you do your planning and you get blindsided and things like that. So those are a few of the, the thoughts that come to mind, Kate. Thanks, Rob, for um, all those uh, insightful notes. As we move into the, the last section of our of our podcast, um, would love to for you to put on your CDO hat and you know help us make some of these decisions. So to begin with, it would be great if you could share uh, advice for let's say an investor who wants to find some gaps that they could potentially invest. What would be your advice for somebody like that? And while we're talking about uh, you advising an investor, what would be an advice? to a country uh, who's thinking of embarking on this digital transformation journey and they probably need help with some of the decisions that they need to get started with. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, I think... Uh, where I, should they put their money and where did they start? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I've, I've kind of spoke already, yeah. spoken already to the, the country picture, which, you know, if... And, and this has happened a few times where I've been visited, um, we, we've been visited at UNDP by, you know, a ministry, a minister of ICT or a minister of digital saying, I've got to get digital transformation going and where do I start? And, and you know, and my advice is you've got to have that clear leadership vision and mandate because uh, an ICT ministry will not be able to lift this on their own. And you've got to have the institutional arrangement in place 
And you've got to think of this as a people problem, not a technology problem. This is as much about getting your behaviors incentivized correctly. And I realize that I'm saying nothing new here. This is the same. We're talking about digital public infrastructure, but it could just as easily be some other kind of efficiency initiative across the, the, the a government or an organization or whatever. I deal with these issues inside UNDP and in my role as chief digital officer as well. It's about getting people and the culture lined up. And then the last thing I would say around it is it's this intentional inclusion point of put the governance and the safeguard thinking in the center, like put people in the center of all of it. As soon as you let people kind of fall away from the center, it is going to end up in the wrong place, I think. So we've got to have the, the governance um, in place. Um, in terms of investment, this is, <laughs> this is a, a, a little bit of a, a trickier one. And if I were sort of saying like, if, if this is a more of a kind of multilateral development bank, type of, of question around investment. I do think there's no questions or there's no question that there are some very fundamental layers here that need to be explored and need to be put in place. And those include things, digital, ident digital identity and uh, some kind of payments platform and getting your data exchanges right and that sort of thing. Those are the kind of often talked about layers. And there's no question, you know, trying to get some of those fundamentals right, I think they're the kind of most key enablers that you can have. However, I would say that they countries have proven that you don't have to have all of those things necessarily, and they don't have to be done all in the same way. And they don't have to be all done by government. They might be introduced by private players that are kind of working within a framework established by government. So there's quite a lot of variability or variation that can be seen there. Um, so it kind of come down, comes down to, you know, what, what is the, the local context conditions and, you know, what do we have the right setup and all of that kind of thing. But, but yeah, I would be thinking ar around those sort of fundamental layers. And again, those are also not just technology issues. The issue surrounding data exchange is, uh, I don't know what you think, Kate, but I would say 85% of it is behavior, human behavior, and only 15% is a sort of technology fix of, you know, implementing data standards or come, kind of coming up with the right interoperability or API kind of bridges and things. But, you know, this is all about kind of getting the, the people stuff right in it. I 100% agree. And I think it was, it came up even on the panel that, that we did during the UN General Assembly, which is, this is really a societal transformation and the digital part just gets tacked onto it. And if you can align, as you eloquently said, the people and the behaviors, then the rest of it becomes relatively easy as long as there are some different technology alternatives that one can choose from that sort of hew to that sort of public part, um, which I think your your playbook did a great job of kind of illustrating. Definitely easier said than done. And I, I think we still have, I, I think there's still a lot of struggles with the way money is funneled to countries to help with this because it is rarely, it, it, it is not as yet, I think, aligned to this holistic approach. 
And so it will be, you yeah. know, here's an identity program over here or a payments platform over here or a data exchange platform over here. And maybe that's okay, but there's still the bulk of money from, you know, a USAID is towards digital health or WHO provides normative guidance. And that's no criticism of any of those groups. As you started this podcast, you said there are problems. People are focused on fixing their problems and not realizing how the whole kind of fits that. So we're going to end with sort of like one, let's say like the million dollar question, which is like, if you could go back five years and do something differently, what's the one thing that you would decide differently, right? So you have all the power in the world to make these changes happen, but like what, <laughs> what's the root cause that's kind of driving some of these things and what would you decide to do differently? Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's a tough hypothetical because uh, i don't know <laughs> yeah. how big my i'm not sure how big my magic wand is but your magic wand is huge it's, it's gonna work it's gonna be fine <laughs> i i do think that the fundamental shift here moving away from solutions to systems and from fragmentation to interoperability these are like the these are things that if if i five years ago we could have been sort of shouting from the rooftops and trying to get everybody to come on board, like to, to kind of pay attention and, you know, Hey, in a couple of years, there's going to be a pandemic and you guys are going to, you know, you're going to see that this is really, really important. Like that, that's certainly one thing. And then, you know, also just, I think we're heading in the right direction on the governance piece, but just always making sure that, that people are at the center of what we're doing in digital transformation because I do think that the ICT for D movement, the ICT for development movement, um, did a lot of really important things and over the last couple of decades. But somehow I feel like it's become or it became a little bit sort of sidelined in some ways from broader human development. And I really think we need to bring those things back together. And for to do that, it's it's about really kind of ensuring that people are at the center and that everything we do building around that technology, governance, protection, safeguards, et cetera, um, has to be sort of seen as an integral part of the package. Um, because, you know, it, it is very easy to leave people out of digital technology implementation because technology problems are easier to fix than people problems. And because, you know, you're always going to be thinking about solving a problem over here and someone's going to be left out over there. So I guess those are the two main things I would have liked to have changed five years ago. So from uh, solutions to people-centered systems that are really, that really serve all of us and help achieve the SDGs. Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we couldn't have thought of a more insightful speaker to start with on the Digital Decisions podcast. I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me.